Honestly, I don't think we can distance from pain and trauma. The very basic principle of uh, creating trust is that you genuinely will connect with them. If you, in that relationship, you feel like they are draining your energy, you want to burn out. But instead, if you see the resiliency of the human spirit, how they overcome the difficulties, is inspiring and energizing. Instead, instead of draining, is enriching. That's Mario Gonzalez. He is a clinician and psychotherapist who works with survivors of torture. And he's been doing that for about 30 years, starting with other Guatemalan immigrants who simply started to approach him for help in the early 90s, recognizing him as someone who understood their situation. These days, he is clinical supervisor at the Kovler Center in Chicago, which is a part of the Heartland Alliance. He works with people claiming political asylum in the U.S. and also on interventions elsewhere around the world, including in, in Latin America. So this is a fairly intense line of work by anyone's standards. Over the course of the interview, we ask, what are the legacy effects of this kind of trauma beyond the purely physical? And what kinds of treatments seem to work best in response to that? How do these approaches need to be culturally adapted or adapted to resource-limited environments in the countries of origin of many of these individuals. What does self-care look like in a tough field like this? How has he avoided secondary trauma over the course of thousands of individual cases of quite extreme uh, trauma and, and its aftermath? This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick, and I was really thrilled to have Mario on the show, so please do enjoy this one. Yeah, you're born with a ball in your feet, but it's, uh, you know, you go into professional, is a complication. It's a lot of corruption, <laughs> no support for the athletes or in any discipline, you know, it's, it's, it's a chaos. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, if they play, well, of course I'm going... For, for Brazil or for Argentina. Mm-hmm. But this time, you know, there are uh, Central Americans competing, and I guess we will support them too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm uh, I'm actually Australian, so my team is pretty bad. Oh, you're Australian? Yeah. So how, they, they played this morning, right? Yeah, they lost to France. It was a terrible game, huh? just terrible, terrible. Was it? Yeah. Oh, sorry to hear. <laughs> well, I, just... I didn't want to wake up. It was five in the morning here. Yeah, yeah. I, I I just skipped that one. <laughs> no, you can skip it. Believe me, it was not a it was not a very interesting match. It's good to see all of them. Anyway, anyway, if you are explaining socially, you know, at a at a wedding or a, just at the bar, I guess, what you do for a living, how would you describe it? Well, um, I work in a treatment center for torture survivors, and. Um, it is um, a challenging work because, you know, I have to start by describing the nature of uh, working with survivors of mm-hmm. torture and who they are, where they come from, and uh, the challenges that they are facing in this society. So because we have to do all of this, you know, I try to avoid these conversations in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> You just, uh, you just tell a lie. But, you do some. You're, you do something else. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Some and less threatening. It's a lot of um, stigma around the issue. You know, when you mention the word uh, torture, people just freaked out, mm-hmm. and I don't blame them. You know, this is something terrible. Mm. Despite that, uh, the media and the mainstream has been like a vulgarized the concept and has um, even um, trying to desensitize the population, in my opinion, at world level, mm. you know, so they are uh, 
it, making us used to the concept of torture like it was something normal. Mm. But actually, this is uh, one of the worst crimes against humanity. And the nature of um, that crime is uh, is terrible in it, in itself, but the the reach, the effects, the sequela that it provokes is, is terrible because it affects the individual, the family, and the larger structures, the, the society at large is affected. This is when, when you see the large scale, the large impact of this, is really is a crime against humanity. It's not just against the individual that uh, you know suffer the the torture. Uh, the world becomes less uh, humane each time that something like this happens. But anyway, we're going back to the more concrete things, the way that uh, in my practice we try to deal with this is providing them with um, mental health medical care, case management, and we use a lot of interpretation and translation too because we are addressing this problem at a global level. So we have uh, asylum seekers that come uh, looking for protection from probably the majority of countries of this world. So then this is one of the crucial parts is to try to be sensitive, culturally sensitive, by providing them with the, you know, the appropriate interpretation or translation mm. of the documents and things. So that's, that's part of what we do. In the mental health, we include several aspects, the psychological services, psychiatric services, and uh, we try to include some other levels in which people could be benefited uh, at the social level. So we try to incorporate the legal aspects and the spiritual aspects. Mm. In, into the legal aspects, um, supporting them in the claims that they have for their asylum process is a vital part because if, um, if they are not accepted or their story is not taken. I mean, this is the credibility issue is a big one for them. Mm -hmm. So supporting them at that level is, is very important. So the the way that we do something for them is trying to um, document the effects of torture at the physical level and um, and emotional and psychologically. So another aspect that is uh, very important in the treatment is uh, the spiritual uh, dimension mm -hmm. because spirituality fosters resiliency, helps people to keep going on and helps in the restoration of hope. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it doesn't matter what religion they practice, what faith they have, or maybe they don't have but they have uh, this uh, spiritual dimension. So supporting them at that level is, is very important and is not necessarily considered like a part of the mental health in, in the traditional settings. Yeah. So this is something that we do. Um, the more concrete things are maybe at the medical level. So we, we provide all the services that, you know, guarantee the... the um, well-being, the, the health, the physical health. So now it's a, it's a combination of, um, of efforts in many directions, trying to, to help them to, to go ahead with their lives. So sometimes I perceive what we do as um, something like a restoration of hope and um, you know, enhancing the abilities that they have, empowering them. So, you know, mm. to, when when people recover mm, the hope, they are in the good path for, you know, the complete resilient process. And um, so it's what we try to do. But 
before they are able to restore hope, probably they need to go through different uh, aspects. Mm. Uh, the first one is uh, the first challenge is uh, trust, because one of the main things that is destroyed with torture is the ability to trust mm. human beings. You you don't trust your your fellow humans mm. because they damage you. You don't trust the systems because many times torture happens under the sponsorship of um, governments or systems or the controlling power in the areas where it happens. Yeah. So it is it it is uh, at the systemic level. So people lose hope in and and trust in in the systems mm. and. So coming and trying to get help is, means that they have to trust at some level in the person that is going to try to help them. And the organization itself as a, an organization that will be advocating in their behalf to help them to move to the next step. A lot of pieces there, but just, just to set the context a little bit, I was looking at... Um some of the documents on the website, and it's a remarkably diverse clientele, if I can use that word, um, in terms of where they come from in the world. I mean, as you say, dozens and dozens of countries, I don't know how many languages, all these different cultural contexts. It was quite amazing, actually, the the diversity of the people that you were dealing with. Yeah, it, it is incredible. In the years that I have here, I probably seen people from more than 80 different nationalities. Mm. And so the cultures, the languages, the, the, it is, it's very interesting. Mm. And uh, it, it's challenging to work with uh, people with different cultures, you know, because the perception of uh, what the problem is like how we conceptualize here the mental health for example mm-hmm. and how it's interpreted by them you know the interpretation of the same problem like depression in some cultures is non-existent mm-hmm. and so we have to adapt into that to be able to be efficient in what we are trying to do so the cultural sensitivity is uh, vital. And how do you how do you manage that? I mean, translators obviously help you with the language, but how do you bridge that gap? Um, which you know, in some cases, would be a very a very big gap, right? If if we're talking about mm-hmm. sort of a Central African culture, for example, which I you know I know to some extent um, some of these contexts, you know, the, the distance from there to uh, Midwestern United States is obviously uh, substantial. How do you approach that? It is uh, interesting, you know, how you could use uh, an empowerment model mm-hmm. trying to put the person in the center of the process. So we move a little bit aside and uh, we let him be the, like, um, the instructors, the professors, the ones teaching us mm-hmm. about their own culture and the interpretation that they have about the phenomena that they are suffering. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just, instead of coming with the answers, preconceived answers, so we come with a more humble position, listening to them and integrating them is like a, a partnership in which they need our expertise into the clinical area, but they come with the richness and they have an expertise in their own culture mm-hmm. and their own experiences. And it's just how how you approach things. For example, something very concrete for me, because we could go to very subjective topic here, very difficult to follow. But in something more concrete, to give an example of the cultural differences, is the religion. So we are not imposing a religion because we are not, um, you know, 
trying to indoctrinate people. So, but, you know, if they have the faith, we encourage them to, to use the resources that they have. But we, we explore this because some people doesn't have any faith and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you could be uh, totally away of religion and still have a, this spiritual dimension. So, but respecting that, learning about that from them is very important. What I propose to people is, okay, so we want to help you with techniques. We want to try to provide you with another uh, methods to deal with the pain, the suffering, but you already are doing something good and we encourage them to keep doing what works for them. Mm-hmm. Of course, if there are positive ways of coping, you know, if somebody is coping using illegal drugs or, or alcohol, of course, we are not <laughs> encouraging that practice, right? Indeed. But and, and we provide alternatives and help them, you know. This is the whole model is, uh, you know, it's trauma-informed and just explaining them the the origin of the symptoms that they have helps them to manage the, the pain that they are suffering. Probably I've seen like a dramatic reduction just by explaining them the the reactions that somebody that has experienced trauma is versus the concept of oh, I'm getting sick for because the experience that I had. Right. You've mentioned the sort of spiritual dimension several times. I mean, what sort of thing are we talking about concretely? What sort of practices, um, you know, and you can't generalize, of course, but if we, if you think of a couple of sort of cases, what sort of practices seem to, to help or to be something to build upon? I remember also working with uh, people from my country when I was working with the Mayan people. You know, the way that they deal with um, emotional or psychological distress is, is very different. They go probably to the spiritual leader mm-hmm. in the community and they perform ceremonies. See, the ceremonial way is the way that they have to deal with things. Mm. Um, when they have experienced, you know, the loss of some close relative or something, instead of um, going to have some drugs or something that help you with the depression, you know, they go to 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 the spiritual leader and they go and perform ceremonies that are similar in many countries, but, you know, and many, in many parts of the world, but this is very close to me, you know, so I am very familiar with this. So they go to the river, they prepare like a flowers uh, offering, Mm-hmm. And so they put it into the river, the stream, and it's a way of symbolically letting go, you know. So this is, um, and, and some prayers, some ceremonies, uh, you know, they, they put the candles and burn everything that they brought for the ofrenda and let the smoke to take the prayers, you know, for for the, the peace of the person that, yeah. Departed. So this is just an example, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is like, I don't necessarily believe in these things, but I see the psychological effect that it produces in people. And, um, and each, each culture has their own mechanisms. So if we, in, instead of uh, just putting aside and going into just the scientific effects of medication and traditional psychotherapy. I mean, not traditional, conventional psychotherapy, because, you know, what they do is the traditional practice, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it works. Mm. It, it works for them, you know. It's just, mm. So, but it, it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't follow a, a scientific approach where we need to be really on top of things and I think is uh, any institution and any organization working with survivors has the moral obligation of being informed of the most recent practices, the, the discovery of new information, what are the, the promising practices that are emerging, 
uh, what are the practices that are, uh, you know, evidence-based uh, successful practices. I don't know if it makes sense, but, you know, this is the way that we, we have been doing this. And our model is more like a community-based. We have hundreds of volunteers. <laughs> this is, we were in a small program and the resources are always limited. And this is one of the challenges, you know, those is, is, uh, this type of topics doesn't receive the, uh, there is no top, too popular to receive huge uh, funding. Mm-hmm. But what has compensated in this is this uh, community approach that we have um, involving a whole community to answer to the needs of the survivors. Like I was saying at the beginning, the this is like a, the systemic approach is very interesting because when somebody is tortured, it's the effect of the whole society <clears throat> that has been indifferent and has been, uh, of, you know, creating, putting, putting the human being at the object category. Mm. And then all of this starts to happen. So to reveal that, we need the effort of the whole community, the whole society. And so this this model of having this large network of volunteers have helped us to reveal the concepts of um, community. That is something that the majority of people that we see here, the, the persons that look for help and approach us, they are uprooted from their society. So they are like, you know, with, with no social support. I mean, not, not just the support that just, you know, helps with the basics to survive, but is this, this concept of having community. I, I think it, you know, if it's not the, the solution, you know, it's one of the keys to re-establishing, reconnecting with hope. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. And because I'm I'm thinking of uh, sort of very resource constrained environments, you know, the effectively the countries of origin of a lot of the people you're talking about. But the model you're describing is not sort of hugely uh, expensive or hugely technical, right? It sounds like it uh, could be applicable in a wide range of situations, and not just in uh, you know Chicago or a, or a a developed country, it sounds like you could adapt that for a quite different sort of context. Yeah, and actually we have been able, you know, the Kobler Center is a small program that is part of the Harlan Alliance International. Mm-hmm. So and through Harlan Alliance International, we have been expanding programs to different parts of the world and uh, incorporating models that uh, could function without a lot of resources and or incorporating the natural resources of the, of the societies where we are trying to implement these models. So we have projects in Iraq, in Nigeria, in Latin America, we have in Colombia, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic. And so we are starting to do something in Central America. Uh, I had the the experience. We developed a project uh, a few years ago with the United Nations support uh, in Guatemala, mm-hmm. and it lasted like ten years. And it was uh, an interesting, like piloting model that we incorporate. We had a small staff. We had physicians and. Instead of having psychologists, we'll have, we have one psychologist to, to keep this, uh, the, the model that we use. But we incorporate the Mayan uh, spiritual leaders into these teams. Mm. And they were like the liaison with the communities. Otherwise, the, the, you know, the community would reject the, the mental health components they would accept the the medical physical part mm. but they wouldn't go into the mental health mm. because it's a totally foreign concept for them because we were working in the highlands with the the mayan population of the highlands so it was an interesting model that the one that we use 
Another one that I could mention to you that is very successful is the one that we have in Colombia. We, we, we have several projects in Colombia, but one of the ones that I'm very familiar because I supervise part of the clinical work is uh, uh, with the Afro-descendants. And uh, we are trying to incorporate uh, all the, the concepts that they have, the traditional way that they have about healing. So it's very interesting because we don't, we don't have the resources, neither the country has the resources in Colombia to provide like psychiatric services to each client. Of course. So we have um, psychologists and these psychologists uh, train paraprofessionals mm -hmm. and these paraprofessionals go into the community and we work um, doing trainings of these people following a model of... Um, like reduction of um, the problems are providing them with techniques in how to keep coping with the problems. So it's like a CBT based uh, program. It's cognitive behavioral. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I start with the, the letters and nobody understands or understands something. I had, a very, I had a vague idea. That was it, but I was going to check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's very effective. Mm. So they meet with uh, people in the community. They go through 12 to 16 sessions. They learn how to cope with the main problems that they have. And after that, so they are in shape to apply that knowledge to different situations in their life. So it's something that with no really huge resources is, is proving to have a, a very effective result. The process for this is is really interesting to me, and you've highlighted the central importance of trust and rebuilding trust. How do you get people, uh, you know, into the building, into the into the first steps of this, given their are going to be issues of lack of trust in institutions, lack of trust in sort of people who look uh, official. How do you cross that initial sort of bridge with a clientele that is going to have those uh, quite extreme trust issues a lot of the time? When I have them inside the building, this is my job to do it. You know, of course. I lose a, I, I, I use a lot of psychoeducation. Mm -hmm. And it, it is the the base, the, the beginning of establishing the trust. The, the problem is how they are convinced to take that first step. Exactly, know? yeah. That's the, the, the challenge. But actually, I think they come out of the necessity because they know that... Um, the lawyers educate them, you know, that uh, if they come here, they will be helped to better tell their stories. And the biggest problems that they have could be reduced or, or fixed. Mm. And so they come with that uh, orientation. So that's, that's what helps us. And then the other uh, thing is that there are communities that are already established. And so it's uh, one by one, you know, the, they meet somebody in their community and that one in the community tells them, you should go to this place, these guys will be able to help you. And so they come with a little skepticism, but they come. And once they are here, <laughs> so that is my job to, to educate them. Mm. I think many of my interventions are psychoeducation. It's a very basic part, you know, but you can show people in basic ways, you know, that it just was what I was saying, you know, explaining the symptoms and the reactions, just explaining them that they are not getting crazy. Mm. It's a normal reaction to the abnormality of the use of torture. And any person in any part of the planet will develop reactions to that. 
Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a human response to this abnormality. So once they understand that, you know, but you have to use examples and connect with them. But once it happens, you know, you, you cannot imagine how this is uh, it's amazing to see the, the change in just one session when they really reach the point of realizing that. It's amazing because it, it creates hope, you know. Oh, okay, so it's not that I'm getting crazy. It's just that I'm reacting naturally to these terrible things that happened to me. Yeah, but this is just to give you a very simplistic example. Of course. Of course, this is a, the complexity of torture is very hard. You know, being honest, I guess, is one of the, the keys that I use. You know, being totally transparent and telling them that uh, I'm not expecting that they trust me. I tell them that just give me the chance to prove that what I could do would help. And then they will be the judges if, like, in, after involving in the services and the treatment, they don't notice any changes, so they are free to go. Mm -hmm. I always tell them, too, that, you know, they are suffering for what happened to them and not for coming to tell me this. I, I couldn't make them feel worse. They are already feeling worse. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, you know, this type of... Uh, illustrations help a lot and so does it matter who the person is taking the risk of coming and participating has just one possibility that is feel better you know there is no other option yeah yeah it, it, it is hard to people to understand that that nothing will make them feel worse because what is making feel bad is what happened to them and it's already happened. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if it makes sense or if you... No, no, it, 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 it does make sense. I mean, the, of course, it's all in the, you know, you have to judge the individual in the individual case. So it's, it's, it's hard yes. to generalize, but it makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And how is that reinforced or complemented by the community aspect that you described? Sort of what does that... Well, uh, this approach involve you know for people outside the uh, outside the setting of the, the the center itself. Like, what are you looking to people in the community to to contribute to the process? It's like uh, we recreate the concept of community in in house. We have one of the groups that is called the cooking group. Actually, we had one yesterday night, and so we had food from three different nations. And uh, so people get together in the kitchen. So we have a huge kitchen. Uh, they cook together and then eat together. So the intentionality of the groups is therapeutic. But, you know, we encourage people to not to talk about the trauma mm. because this, these uh, groups uh, have the intentionality we call them normalizing activities instead of uh, just focusing the negative aspects of the trauma to explore the positive and the positive richness of life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sharing the universal ceremony of sitting around the table and eating and they feel like they are a company. They see a lot of faces around volunteers and, uh, and another Clients come, so and sharing that process is is, is one of these uh, normalizing activities in in which we really are reconstructing, we are rebuilding the sense of community. What sort of time frame are we talking about here? I mean, it varies obviously tremendously, but you know, from the day that uh, an individual sort of first sets foot in the building to uh, the point where you would consider you've sort of done, you know, what you're able to do. Um, is, there, is this years? Uh, is it longer? As you can imagine, is uh, there are a lot of variables in of each course. case. <laughs> this is, uh, depends on the severity of the trauma, uh, repetition of traumas, 
uh, previous existing conditions. Mm -hmm. oh, there's a lot of things, but taking the risk for, you know, just giving you a number, I would say the average, I would say that is two years. Okay. One of the problems, you know, that are uh, these variables that are out of our control is the legal system. For example, the asylum process has been delayed incredibly here. Mm -hmm. yeah. Some people has been spending four or five years before the case is settled. So if the case is pending, people don't want to move on, you know, so they, they just stick with the center and they want to keep connected. Yeah. And um, uh, there are issues that are not solved. You you see that <clears throat> many times the the PTSD decreases and normalizes, and um, other problems like uh, acute anxiety is is always high, and it is because they are uh, with the fear of being deported, the uncertainty if uh, they could start to have a life here or they will have to plan life somewhere else. But it's, it's, it's a complicated issue. But like in general, like I would say that from 18 months to 24 months, people is ready to make the move. Mm. Um, you know, we have to consider, you know, what what's going on because, you know, it's uh, acculturation, um, the sense of integration too. Mm. You know, having a job, mm. normalizing an independent life mm. is vital to what could be considered recovery, right? Mm -hmm. So if they lack all of these things, so this, I, I have to tend to see Maslow categories, you know, that are essential mm. to any recovery process mm. besides the psychological internal things. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And you have been doing this uh, quite a long time. 20, 30 years? Yeah. So you must have dealt with, uh, I assume, hundreds of cases, maybe thousands of cases over that time, no? Thousands. Thousands. Yes. And I'm the clinical supervisor of this, this center, so i overseen the cases. Well, it doesn't mean, to be honest, that I oversee each one of the cases, but, you know, when there are problems or complications, they always come to my desk, you know. Yeah. So I have to be involved. So I've seen a lot. Yeah. I've seen a lot. How do you, does that affect your own? I mean, some of that must be quite difficult to to hear or to, to interact with. Um, how do you sort of stay engaged, but uh, at a safe distance, if I can put it that way? I mean, it, it must be quite potentially stressful or difficult for yourself, that being the, the constant sort of stream of, of uh, uh, emotions and, and trauma that you're engaging with every day. Hmm. <laughs> that's that's the hundred thousand million dollars question, right? <laughs> For all of us in this in this field, yeah. and you know, honestly, I don't think we can distance from pain and trauma. Mm. You know, we are very immersed into that because. There is no way, you know, that you could protect yourself by not engaging with the person because the very basic principle of uh, creating trust is that you genuinely will connect with them. Yeah. So in this empathic process, there is no way that you will be distant, you know. So you will be involved. And I think it's embracing that, that involvement and... Uh, having the, you know, the hope that you will be able to facilitate the process in which they will make the changes that they need to do to recover. Mm. So it's like, um, it depends, you know, if you 
in that relationship that you establish with each of the traumatized persons, you feel like they are draining your energy, you want to burn out. Mm. But instead, if you are empowered by the see the resiliency of the human spirit, how they overcome the difficulties is inspiring and it's energizing. Instead of, instead of draining, it's, it's enriching. Mm. You know, I, I consider myself very fortunate to be witnessing so many courageous women, men, children that make the moves to recover. And, and uh, you know, this is the probably the ego, you know, gets a little satisfaction too, even when you try to put it aside. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you feel like, oh, at least I had a little contribution in the life of this individual. And it feels good, you mm. know. It's like the secondary gain. But I think um, it's, it's how people take the actions that they are taking and the interpretation that you have of this world, yeah. you know. We could be inside the bubble and pretending that nothing is going on outside. And uh, it could be, it's just like, a, um, it's a fantasy of the beauty of the world. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, if you are really with open eyes, you know, and, and you know how the world is, mm. and you are trying to make a better place for people to live and for yourself, because, you know, it requires this understanding that this is systemic. So the use of torture is uh, in humane practice. So when we do something in the line of the recovery, when we advocate for the eradication of these practices, we are empowering ourselves by doing our little you know, bringing our little grain of sand into the transformation of the world. I don't know. This, is, this question that you asked me is kind of romantic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you you have to you have to think about these things on a on a daily basis, right? I mean, I'm not uh, sort of client facing in the sense that you have been, but when you confront these systemic issues that you can't control. Um, you know, you have to think about what your what your role is and, and what you can usefully contribute, right? And this is a, a key question, I think, for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you must have had to over the years. I'm sure you've seen colleagues who uh, have not been able to deal with this, maybe um, as well uh, over the long term as you, and, and do find it, you know, extremely stressful or even depressing or, or, you know, just too much after a while. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, this is not for everyone, you know. This is, um, some some people is highly disturbed by this and they re-experience what the clients are experiencing. Mm. So this is the secondary trauma, the burnouts, and, you know, they call compassion, fatigue, whatever name is this given, you know, happens, happens. Mm. Actually, this is, uh, if, if one of the questions that you suggested that we could talk about is, uh, you know, what, what things I would do differently, mm. you know, and I was, it, it was very interesting question, you know, I, I, I hardly think about that, you know. And uh, so it, it provided me a good reflection. So I started to reflect, you know, hmm, what I could do different. <laughs> and probably, uh, I guess, uh, it's exactly that. One, one of the things is not dealing with all these problems by myself, mm. but, but instead creating a sense of community and have uh, like collective responses, collective answers to the problem. And then um, 
I remember, you know, at some point, probably I was uh, trying, uh, I, I was reaching the point of burning out. I remember a frequent uh, recurrent dream that I had um, that I, I saw long lines of asylum seekers mm. and all of them waiting to see me, but they were, you know, endless, endless lines of them asking for help. And I was trying to help them and I felt so powerless that I couldn't help more people, you know. But bit by bit, the reflection into what was going on came to my mind in a more conscious way. And uh, I was able to see that, you know, what my mind was trying to tell me is, well, the day has 24 hours. Mm -hmm. People will keep coming and you do what you can do. And part of what you can do, because the day has only 24 hours, is to take care of yourself. So this is what I was when you know, your question helped me to come with this reflection. So I, I, I just wanted to share with you that this is part of, it's a good reflection, I mean, you know. Mm. So I, I probably do differently also the, this, you know, having a more um, objective goals in the in terms of numbers of people that I could help. Mm. Is that has that changed? Do you think you were uh, a bit less uh, balanced in your perspective maybe when you were when you were younger? It sounds like um, maybe that's something that's evolved over time for you. Yeah, no, it, it is true. You know, when I started doing this, I work. Sometimes it was an exaggeration, even 18 hours straight, not going to, you know, take uh, Saturdays or Sundays off, you know, just going into this too deep. Mm. And, and that's, I, I think that's what I would do different, you know. I will take better care of myself. <laughs> it took me years to learn. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you mentioned the need for a sort of collective collective answers. There was the phrase you used. Um, do we do a do we do a good job of that? I think I know a lot of people who keep that sort of stress or that burnout or near burnout sort of internal, and I, I don't know that they or or me in the past have done a good job of. Um, sharing that or finding sort of joint ways of thinking about that. I think uh, it tends to be internalized and, and we don't necessarily have a, a sort of community approach to these kinds of issues. And, and maybe that's a reflection of sort of Western cultures more than rather than being more general. But I don't know that we do develop collective answers to, the, to those challenges. Yeah, it is true. Um, you know, when we started with this job, we we were learning, all of us, you know, and so we had the, the expertise of um, the Illinois Psychological Association that were involved in, in helping us to shape the program. Mm. And uh, we had, because we were very new into this, so we were meeting every every week. So we met every week and we had case consultations and uh, self-support. Mm. And we started to notice how many people started to develop secondary trauma symptoms. Mm. And so we started to find out mechanisms to deal with that. But yeah, so it is it, a result of um, a, a community analysis, a community reflection. Mm. Besides of the traditional things, you know, of having like yoga or any other type of meditation or yeah. mindfulness or things that, you know, the majority of people do or, or exercising, which all of those practices are really good, you know, mm. but is something else that is needed, that is, is, is the reflection, but... In, in my opinion, it's not like an individual reflection, but it should be like in a group. Yeah. Do you think that your own background and your, 
educated in Guatemala and and have a you know your own sort of cultural window on the world uh, has that informed your practice in this regard because in the the way you described the early days um, maybe it had a bit, a bit more of a sort of psychiatric flavor to it uh, and it sounds like it's evolved to become like fairly holistic in approach do you think that that is 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 driven by or, or informed by your specific background? Is this something maybe that someone that isn't uh, from a, a purely Western medical background uh, is likely to have maybe better insight into? Well, I, I couldn't compare, you know, if it is better or not. But, <laughs> you're, you're, you're just you, so I, I know you don't have the comparison, but... How much yeah. of this do you think comes from sort of your own, you know, your, your your family history and your culture and the political history of Guatemala and all the rest of it? Um, how does that all sort of fit together? You know, one of the things, uh, I, I guess, uh, talking about the formal education that I had um, was influenced back then, you know, theology, liberation theology was uh, very popular. Right, yeah. And uh, so... Uh, when I was uh, studying psychology, so it was permeated by that. So we start to practice psychology of liberation. So, you know, um, all the influence of Martin Baró and uh, all the priests from uh, the UCA in El Salvador influenced this movement. And the, the theologians, uh, you know, in, in Brazil and all, all, all Latin America. It was a big movement that influenced all of us. So I guess in that perspective, of course, it, it, it shifted the way that I see what therapy was mm. and how to approach these uh, sociopolitical realities. So th that's one of the things. And then the own experiences, uh, you know, witnessing war, mm -hmm. um, having close people to me that were affected by torture or they were killed, disappeared, or, you know, all of these things. So, of course, that it marked me and um, forced me to find answers to this type of questions, you know. So it, it is it's a whole line of uh, thinking and working and even even deciding to to move to do this type of work is influenced by that. I, sometimes I feel that I didn't choose to come to do this work, but the work chose me. <laughs> so this is, is, is uh, I don't know if it makes sense, but this is what happened, you know, in my personal story. So when I was in school, many people came to consult with me, even when I was not really ready. You know, they brought me all the elements and problems that they were suffering. And my first reaction was uh, you know, to recommend them to look for professional help. Mm. But they didn't trust people. And then having somebody that was uh, in school with them. So I, I think, you know, they, they start to trust me. And um, so I was closer to them than going to the professional that could just sell them out. Mm. Mm. And so I think it's how I started to do this. When I came to this country, I met a lot of people in the community. And whenever we had parties or we had gatherings, because they learned that I was a psychologist, so they approached me with the problems. Mm. So it's like I didn't have any choice. <laughs> And it's interesting, you know, life sometimes just put us in that position. Did you 
anticipate that you would be spending, you know, really your whole working life on this at that time or? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the plan. <laughs> it, was not, it was not my plan, but you know, that the other day I was considering how my life would be different because, you know, I, I left my country during the years of the, the armed conflict. And uh, I, I wasn't planning to be here in the United States. Uh, I had friends that were uh, psychologists uh, working at the university in mm. Berlin. Yeah. I, my intention was to move to Berlin. And I had a scholarship, but part of that scholarship uh, implied one year of intense learning of the German language. Mm -hmm. The next year was um, academic. Mm. And in exchange, I had to work two years in community clinics in the neighborhoods mm. that happened to be refugee neighborhoods. Mm. So I was thinking, you know, at the end, I would be doing the same work. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, uh, and believe me, I'm not uh, a deterministic person. I'm not a fatalistic either. But, you know, sometimes things happen for, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's a, an interesting world. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I guess we find ourselves where we need to be, right? Would you, uh, I, I will put the, the question to you that you, you mentioned earlier, would you change anything looking back at that? I mean, not in terms of not working with this population, mm. because I think uh, the reason why I was pulled into that is because there was a huge need. Yeah. And um, the need would move me anyway into that. So... That's what, you know, I don't see differently. Mm. Probably what I could try to do differently is a more more systemic way to approach it other than just jumping into this and trying to help. Well, actually, nobody was very informed back then, you know. All people that was in in this movement trying to, to help survivors, all of us were learning, mm. you know, with a few exemptions that, exceptions that, you know, probably were professors, <laughs> a few <laughs> of them, but uh, the majority of people were just exploring, you know, and the proof of that is that up to date, so still we are learning. There are gaps, you know, in the treatment. And so, we don't have, you hear these concepts of uh, evidence-based, trauma-informed programs, but actually there are many gaps that are not really answered. And so the way that uh, the community is dealing with this, the scientific community is dealing with this, is talking about emerging promising practices. It's the far that they have reached because, you know, there are no answers for this to uh, like, for example, how you measure the rebuilding of trust. Mm. So it's very hard. So we know the scientific method. You have to have uh, control groups and, you know, go into all of this. But still, how you measure hope? Mm. How you measure the reestablishment of hope? How you measure trust? And then you have the variables of... Uh, Society trying to deport them. Society that doesn't provide, um, a, a, you know, smooth integration into it. So there are a lot of things that, you know, in order to have like a, a really scientific based evidence of what we are doing is the right thing is still far away. Mm. So... You know, what I'm trying to say is that this is uh, something that is, is evolving constantly. Mm. And maybe at some point we will have the, you know, better answers than the ones that we have now. The you know, professionalization, for lack of a better word, or the, you know, the development of a 
the system of thinking around this is already not a bad legacy, no? I mean, I think yeah. right. <laughs> over right. the long term, this is this is already quite uh, quite something. I, I I was talking to a few of the people from the Illinois Psychological Association, the ones that are still still alive and the ones that are uh, more retired, mm. that are just a few. And we were talking about this, like anecdotically, and uh, just considering how far since when we started this work, the the whole conceptualization and evolution of metal systems has has changed the the perception of what the practice should be. Mm. It's, it's interesting. It's a big evolution, you know, and that has happened in in three decades, which is you know, very, very short period of time to see all this evolution. I, I guess, you know, methods and um, systems evolve too slowly and, uh, you know, our lives go too fast. <laughs> well, you <laughs> sometimes the long-term perspective is, is the right one. <laughs> three, <laughs> yes. dec- three decades uh, is a long time to... <laughs> To see uh, to see that development take uh, take place, like a friend used to say, you know, three decades is a lot for a human being, but not for a tree. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was gonna say, not for a tree, not for a not for a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Well, I mean, one another thing I ask everybody um, to sort of work towards a close. If you recommended a a book that has been very influential for you sort of over that time frame. Uh, what would that be? Actually, actually, you know, um, there are several books, you know, that have come out lately. Mm. I, I would recommend to people that is interested in the topic to do search in mm-hmm. uh, trauma-informed practices and best practices. So just doing a search in these two topics will bring very good number of uh, studies and uh, and books, analysis, anecdotal analysis too. Probably, like I said, when I was a student, we were influenced a lot by this liberation tendency. And uh, so probably the book of Martin Barrow influenced me a lot, you know. Mm. So this is uh, it's very interesting. It's more like a psychosocial projection of the of the work. Into the clinical, one of my favorites that influenced me is uh, what Judith uh, German Judith German wrote, uh, Trauma and Recovery. Mm-hmm. Is, is all, all the principles are still valid, you know, and keep uh, being a very useful tool. Mm. But there are several new things that are coming on, you know, because it's what we need, you know, if we are morally responsible, we have to keep, you know, being informed and up to date in the new, new approaches, new discoveries and all these things. It's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in there. Is there anything that you sort of had in mind that you wanted to add that I, we haven't touched on? You know, something that uh, is, is interesting is the work that we do here mm. is very sophisticated, and it is possible just because we are part of a large organization. So, so we are part of the Harlan International, which is one of the companies affiliated to the Harlan Alliance. Mm -hmm. And so inside the Alliance, we have several programs that deal with aspects that we couldn't, you know, deal because it would be a totally different business. Uh, For example, we partner a lot with the National Immigration Justice Center. So they provide all the legal representation to our clients. Mm. So, so they work the legal, we work the clinical, and we interact so that the human rights levels we advocate together for, you know, the implementation and access to justice. 
So by helping the clients to do a better representation of their cases. So this is an interesting partnership inside the, our own organization. Mm. There is another part of the organization that is the Harlan, Harlan Health System. Those guys are in charge of clinics all around the city, are community clinics, and they have access to dental and some other services that are very specialized and we don't have them. Mm. So we partner with them too. You know, financially and administratively, if we wouldn't have like the Harlan Alliance International, it would be even harder for us to survive. Yeah, yeah it's, it's good to have all these, uh, you know, support systems or partnerships. <laughs> the partnerships, you know, with yeah, the yeah. different professionals that could bring more services to the clients, needed services. It's always a mistake to sort of focus on the psychological aspects and ignore sort of very real, urgent problems that people have, right? So they have to work. <laughs> yeah. They have to work together or it's uh, it's not going to be successful. It is true. Absolutely. Listen, that's uh, really, really good. Huh? Um, it's a really unique view on things. And I think it's very interesting for people who work uh, with people affected by trauma, you know, in a non-clinical way, but still have to interact with people who've been through often horrendous experiences. It's a great story, but it's also sort of quite useful in a practical sense, I think. Thank you. So thanks so much. Huh? Um, nice talking to you and maybe someday you will come to visit. I'll show you the center. I would love to. I would love you to. You will have really a better sense of how it works. Yeah, I haven't been to Chicago in um, in ten years. I'd love to come back actually. Oh, I have, uh, I have some friends there, so uh, I may take you up on that sometime. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it would be great to have you here. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.